Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a margarita. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking a screwdriver, and on today's episode, we're looking at the Circleville Letters, an unsolved mystery that rocked a small Ohio town and potentially led to the wrongful imprisonment of an innocent man. Circleville, Ohio is a small town with about 11,000 residents. In 1976, a number of Circleville residents began receiving strange anonymous letters signed by, quote-unquote, the Circleville writer. The letters were all handwritten in a large block style. They were postmarked Columbus, Ohio, which is about half an hour from Circleville, and many were mailed without a return address. The letters accused local people of embezzlement, domestic violence, affairs, and even murder. Mary Gillespie, a school bus driver, received what is believed to be the first letter and was accused of having an affair with Gordon Massey, the superintendent of schools for the district she worked for. The author told Mary that they had quote-unquote observed her house, knew she had children, and said the affair had to stop. It demanded she take things seriously. Mary received a second letter just over a week later, which read in part, quote, Too many think this is a joke. We'll see in time, end quote. Another letter stated, lady, quote, This is your last chance to report him. I know you are a pig and will prove it and shame you out of Ohio. A pig sneaks around and meets other women's husbands behind their backs, causes families and homes and marriages to suffer, end quote. She hid the letters from her husband, Ron, until he received a letter of his own. The letter told Ron that if he didn't do anything to stop the affair, then his life would be in danger. End quote. You should catch them together and kill them both. End quote. Two weeks later, Mary received an even more menacing letter that threatened to make the affair public with billboards, TV, and radio ads if she did not report it to the school board. She denied that she was having an affair with Massey. Letters received by Ron and Mary had two different styles of handwriting, the aforementioned blocky handwriting and a more typical style of handwriting that was signed with the letter W. Mary and Ron had an idea of who was sending the letters, and they told only Ron's sister Karen, her husband Paul Freshour, and Paul's sister about the letters and their suspicions. The group had Paul write a letter to the potential author saying they knew their identity. Four or five letters were sent in total. Freshour later told the TV show Unsolved Mysteries, quote, We thought we'd scare the guy. We sent him four or five letters only. There was no violence in them or anything, just that we knew who he was and what he was doing, and we sent him the letters, end quote. The letters to Mary and Ron stopped, and their plan seemed to work. Then, on August 19, 1977, while Mary and Karen were out of town with friends, Ron received a phone call that was allegedly from the writer of the letters. The call was said to have confirmed Ron's suspicions on the writer's identity. That same night, Ron got his gun, said goodbye to the kids, and told them he was going to confront the writer. He drove off in his pickup truck. Not long after Ron's pickup truck was found crashed into a tree, Ron was dead inside. Investigators found that Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun between the time he left his home and the crash, but investigators never found out why the gun went off or who Ron was shooting at. 
Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe questioned and eliminated at least one suspect who has not been named in the case. He then decided Ron's death an accident, claiming that he had lost control and crashed while driving drunk. Ron's blood alcohol level was one and a half times the legal limit. However, family and friends claimed Ron was not a heavy drinker, and his children said he didn't appear drunk when he left their home. Following Ron's death, residents of Circleville and Pickaway County began receiving letters stating that Sheriff Radcliffe had been involved in a cover-up. Letters also shared details about Mary's affair with Massey. According to Paul, Sheriff Radcliffe initially agreed that the death was the result of foul play. However, he allegedly changed his mind when the initial suspect passed a polygraph test. Paul and others pushed to have investigators reconsider Ron's case. More anonymous letters were sent to the residents of Circleville and neighboring towns. These letters included gossip and accusations against prominent townspeople. In 1979, Massey divorced his wife and began a relationship with Mary Gillespie. However, Mary and Massey claimed that their relationships did not start until after the letters were sent. In February 1983, threatening signs were placed along Mary's bus route. This was assumed to have been done by the letter writer. One afternoon, she noticed an obscene sign that targeted her 13-year-old daughter. Angered, Mary decided to tear it down. When she did, she discovered a booby trap that had seemingly been designed to kill her. Behind the sign was a box, a string, and another post that was attached to a fence. The trap had a box which contained a small loaded pistol. If Mary had pulled the sign off a certain way, the gun would have fired. An attempt had been made to rub the serial number off the gun. Lab tests were able to discover the number, and it was determined that the gun had belonged to Paul Freshour, who had recently separated from Ron's sister. Freshour, however, claimed that the gun had been missing and assumed stolen and that he had nothing to do with the trap. His fingerprints were not found on the gun or booby trap. On February 25, 1983, Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet with him and take a handwriting test. Paul was asked to try and copy the distinct handwriting from the letters. Sheriff Radcliffe also had him write the letters while repeating them aloud. Radcliffe then went to Fresh Hour's home and he showed him where he kept his gun. No other evidence like ammunition for the gun or materials that would have been used to make the booby trap were found. Afterwards, the two returned to the courthouse where Paul was arrested and charged with attempted murder. On October 24, 1983, Paul went on trial for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. Although he was not charged with writing the threatening letters, they became a crucial part of the evidence against him, and the judge allowed 39 letters to be used as evidence in the trial. The prosecution claimed the writing on the booby trap shared similarities to those letters. A handwriting expert testified that Freshour was the letter writer. Mary also testified that she believed he was the writer after his wife Karen visited her with the same suspicion. Freshour's boss also testified that he was not at work on the day that the booby trap was found. Paul did, however, have an alibi for a majority of the day. In the end, he was convicted and given a 7-24 to 24 year sentence. 
Though Paul was in prison, people were still receiving harassing letters signed by the Circleville writer. They were still postmarked Columbus, Ohio, which was almost 100 miles away from where Paul was imprisoned. Freshour even began receiving letters while incarcerated. He was placed in solitary confinement and was not given any pens or paper, but the letters continued. Every letter he wrote or received was inspected, and according to the prison warden, there was no possible way he was sending out the new letters. In December 1990, Paul became eligible for parole, but his parole was denied because of the letters, despite the fact that he was not sending them. After being denied parole, Paul received a letter that said, Now when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago. When we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. No one. This is a joke on you. Ha ha. End quote. In May 1994, Freshour was finally paroled after serving just over 10 years in prison. While Unsolved Mysteries was preparing to film a piece on the Circleville letters in 1994, they received a postcard allegedly from the letter writer. It read, quote, Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. The Circleville writer, end quote. The crew was not deterred and continued filming, though few Circleville residents chose to participate. Journalist Martin Yant learned about the case while Fresh Hour was incarcerated and came to believe that Fresh Hour had been framed. Yant found another possible suspect that could potentially be the writer or at the very least responsible for the booby trap and Mary's attempted murder. While going through the police files, Yant discovered Critical information that was not used during Fresh Hour's trial. According to the documents, Mary told the sheriff that 20 minutes before she found the booby trap, another bus driver on her route had seen a large, suspicious man with sandy hair standing next to a yellow El Camino. The man was at the same spot where the trap would later be found and appeared to be hiding his face and body from passerbys on the road. The description does not match Paul. He had a solid alibi at this specific time, and he didn't own an El Camino. However, the description does fit a man that Karen, Fresh Hour's ex-wife, was dating at the time, and Karen's older brother did in fact own a yellow El Camino. Shoe prints found at the scene also did not match Paul's shoe size. Yant told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, there was no attempt at all to follow up on that lead, end quote. Information discovered by Yant and others suggested the possibility of three separate writers, none of whom being Paul Freshauer. Other potential authors include William Massey, the son of the superintendent with whom Mary had an affair with, David Longberry, a co-worker who was infatuated with Mary and would later go on to rape an 11-year-old girl, and Karen Freshour, Paul's ex-wife and Ron Gillespie's sister. Some of the initial Circleville letters were signed W, which seemingly fits William Massey. Karen may have been holding a grudge against Paul. She had cheated on him during their marriage, and this detail was used against her in their divorce proceedings, which helped Paul gain custody of their children. He also took their house in the divorce trial. Despite the evidence, the police still maintained that Paul was the Circleville writer. 
In August 2021, the TV show 48 Hours aired an episode centered on the Circleville letters. In the episode, Beverly East, a renowned handwriting and forensic documentation expert, was interviewed. She concluded definitively that the police were correct all along and that Fresh Hour was in fact the perpetrator by pointing to key characteristics in the Circleville writer's handwriting that match Fresh Hour. However, how Fresh Hour would have been able to write some of the letters from prison remains unknown. It is not known if Fresh Hour had an accomplice to help with this. The letters finally ended in 1994. Between 1976 and 1994, thousands of letters were sent to the citizens of Circleville, Pickaway County, Ohio, and Central Ohio. Fresh Hour kept a blog on the case and continued to maintain his innocence until his death in 2012 at the age of 70. He strongly believes that a cover-up took place and that Sheriff Radcliffe was involved and lied about details of the case to the press. The author of the Circleville letters has never been revealed and no one has been charged for them. Del, what are your thoughts on the Circleville letters? I think that the Circleville letters is a case of neighborhood watch gone wrong and gone to its most extreme examples. I think that whoever wrote the letters had a lot of time on their hands and just wanted to cause chaos within this town and other places around Ohio. When it comes to Paul Fresh Hour, I don't know if I believe that he was the author. At least, I don't believe that he was the sole author of the letters because he was in solitary confinement and letters were still being sent. So unless the prison is lying and he had the ability to send out letters, which I don't think that they would do, then at the very least, there had to be someone else. I think that there is likely more evidence that Cameron Fresh Hour was involved especially the letter that stated when we set people up, they stay set up and you're just going to stay in prison because she had the most to gain by Paul being in prison. And she did have a connection to a person that witnesses saw near where the booby trap was set up. As we were talking about this case and I have watched other things on this case, No evidence has been presented as to why Paul would want Mary dead. Like, I don't understand, like, why he would have set up the booby trap in the first place. And I don't know if this is a case where we're going to get a definitive answer. I think that combination of just how anonymous the letters were and the time that has passed since the letters stopped being sent. It might just be a thing of speculation, but I would probably place my money on Karen Fresh Hour. What are your thoughts? I find this case so interesting. And like you were saying, it really is like small town drama gone so far. I don't understand why Mary and Ron wouldn't have gone to the police if they even had like an inkling of who they thought did it. Nowhere did I read that they did tell the police this. They just like took it into their own hands, which 
I definitely don't agree with. Mary and Massey most definitely had an affair. What a joke to say, oh, well, it started either after the letters were out or after Ron died. You were already publicly accused of having an affair. Who then goes and starts a relationship with someone they were like so flagrantly accused of having an affair with? I don't understand that. And I've also heard that Gordon Massey had an affair with an employee at a previous school district he worked for and was asked to leave. And that's why he was at Mary's school district in the first place. I don't know what to think of Ron's death. I am inclined to say it was an accident. I don't really know how like blood alcohol level could be faked. But what a crazy, crazy story with that. I think if we want to get really like into like crazy theories, maybe Mary set something up. Because she was having an affair and she was like conveniently out of town. I don't know. I don't think there's any evidence for that. But I don't know. If people want to think about things, maybe an explanation for that. I don't know. This is definitely some lazy police work. The handwriting test, like what a joke that is to have someone copy the letters. And it was like the blocky letters. It's not even someone's natural handwriting. So of course, it's going to look the same if someone is copying letters. And we're going to talk about how handwriting tests should be done a little later. But I think that is just so egregious. And I really feel bad for Paul. I don't think he was the letter writer. And I don't think he tried to set up the booby trap for Mary. I do think that there were different writers. I think it some of it makes sense for William Gordon Massey's son. Especially if one of the letters called her a pig and said that she's like destroying families, it would make sense for him to say that. But I think Yant, the journalist, Martin Yant, the journalist, believes it was David Longberry at first and then Karen afterward. The letter had said that they wanted Mary to go to the school board to confess, which makes sense for David Longberry since he was a co-worker of hers. And I don't know how old William Massey would have been at the time of this. So I can see why maybe people wouldn't think it was him. But on one podcast that I listened to, they did say that they thought that Mary, Ron, Karen, and Paul did think the original letters were from William. So I don't know if Mary had any type of interaction with him. If Gordon Massey maybe had said, my son knows he's on to something. I don't know anything like that. I think that's really interesting. I don't know if William Massey has ever been interviewed or like given any thoughts on this either. I do think there were a lot of copycats from this just because of how many letters went out and like how widespread it was. There's no way that one person in one small town would have all this information on people in central Ohio. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like you said, Del, I am more inclined to say it was Karen for the following letters and who helped set up like the potential hit on Mary, which I'll be honest, I don't really understand that. That's really a long shot that this booby trap is going to go off and kill her if it's done the right way. And also, what if someone else took the sign down? Like we don't know... Yes, I'm sure they were trying to target Mary with it, but anyone easily could have stopped and been pissed off by that sign and taken it down. I don't know for sure how long the sign was out there. I don't know if it was for a few hours. I think that's right, but that just doesn't really 
um, make that much sense to me. I think Karen does have a pretty clear motive. The sighting of the man and El Camino points in her direction. Like you said, I don't really know what Paul's motive would be. He also didn't even live in Circleville. He lived somewhere else with Karen. Something that I had heard mentioned on the Trail Went Cold podcast is that Karen never mentioned her suspicions of Paul being the Circleville writer until after their divorce when all of this was going on. And if she really was worried about him being this like sneaky possibly like threatening violent person wouldn't you bring that up in the divorce proceedings to try to like get one over on him and gain custody of your children I don't understand that I did want to say some this is like a theory I saw on a message board so take with it what you will but some people have said that they think Paul wrote the letters before going to prison and had someone mail them out while he was gone which I think is a little much but I mean, we can't rule that out. So take with that what you will. I love this case, by the way. Like when I saw it and I know that it was between this and The Watcher, I know The Watcher is coming up in a few. I was kind of secretly hoping that you picked this case because when you think of the reason why the initial letters went out, they went out to expose an affair. And so obviously the people closest to those two individuals are the main suspects. But then you get Ron's death. You get Paul being thrown in jail for attempted murder, which, I mean, there was no other violence connected to the letters. And so the fact that the letters were such a big part of him going to jail, I think it's just strange. And I do think you made a great point about the fact that Karen didn't bring up the letters in the divorce proceedings, but afterwards was trying to make it seem like Paul was this just vile and, I don't know, like vindictive guy. That's the word, like vindictive guy that would go through all of this to expose an affair. I do wonder what would have happened if Mary followed the instructions of the initial letter. Like, would the letters have stopped? Would they have just moved on to a different target? Like, what would have been the outcome if the letter writer got exactly what he wanted in the beginning? I guess that's a big what if in this case. Yeah, that is a really interesting question. What would have happened? I think if it was from David Longberry, I wonder if he would have kept sending letters to her because he clearly wanted some type of relationship and she wasn't going to him for that maybe they would have continued but yeah this whole mess probably would have been avoided we didn't mention this but sheriff radcliffe i don't really know what to make of him i mean i think there's definitely some corruption there i think he really railroaded paul um so one of the reasons paul says that he sheriff radcliffe went after him is because he was paul was really trying to get radcliffe to say that Ron was murdered and that put a target on his back too which again I do think it was probably an accident with Ron but what a strange like sequence of events to lead up to it I don't blame any of them for being suspicious yeah Sheriff Radcliffe is a weird character in all this because you can definitely sympathize with him that he's the sheriff in this town. There's a bunch of weird letters going out that 
is exposing people and just causing general havoc in the town. And then you just have this car crash that happens with the husband of the person that was receiving the initial letter. So I don't find too much like nefarious with him, but I do think that he was wrong to railroad Paul. And, you know, just because someone's being a strong advocate for something that you disagree with, that doesn't mean that you as a law enforcement officer can railroad them and take away 10 years of that man's life at the end of the day. Yeah, it's crazy. So let's take a little bit of a look at what handwriting analysis involves and a little bit on its reliability. So I wanted to start with a quote from Martin Yant, and he's saying this about the handwriting analysis test, whatever, that Paul Freshour uh, went through. He said, quote, that is not the proper way to test to see if someone has a certain writing style, because if they're copying from a letter, they're going to try to emulate the style. And the expert said that the testing was improper. So they didn't really say that these letters were written by Paul Freshour. They said they could have been, end quote. Handwriting and handwriting style is unique to everyone. It's almost like a fingerprint. Handwriting analysts say that people could have a few writing characteristics that are the same, but the likelihood of having any more than that is impossible. And this is really the basis of handwriting analysis. Handwriting analysis is looking for small differences between the writing of a sample where the writer is known and a writing sample where the writer is unknown. Instead of beginning to look for similarities in the handwriting, a QDE or questioned document examiner begins to search for differences, then absent characteristics, then finally similarities. A QDE is looking at three things, letter form, line form, and formatting. Letter form includes curves, slants, the proportional size of letters, the slope of writing, and the use and appearance of connecting lines or links between letters. Line form includes how smooth or dark the lines are, which indicates how much pressure the writer applies when writing and the speed of the writing. Formatting includes the spacing between letters, the spacing between words, the placement of words on a line, and the margins a writer leaves empty on a page. It's also considered spacing between lines. Grammar, spelling, phrasing, and punctuation should also be looked at during handwriting analysis. A problem that arises during handwriting analysis is a stimulation, which is the attempt to disguise one's handwriting or the attempt to copy another's. An example of this are shaky lines, dark and thick starts and finishes for words, and lots of pen lifts. All of these factors are present when someone is forming letters slowly and carefully instead of naturally, which is done quickly and without a second thought. Stimulation is only one factor that could lead to a handwriting analysis being inaccurate. Some other factors include drugs, exhaustion, and illness. Other factors are made by human error, like comparing uppercase and lowercase letters, or by not having a good sample from the suspect. Numerous samples from the suspect make handwriting analysis far more reliable than a simple one-to-one -one comparison. 
Handwriting analysis has a nine-level conclusion scale that ranges from identification being a high degree of confidence that the handwriting matches to elimination, meaning the handwriting doesn't match. Studies have shown that the error rate for handwriting analysis when done by experts is 0.49% to 9.3%. Now we wanted to talk about some similar stories that either had some threatening mysterious notes or uh, some anonymous threats. And the first is one of my personal favorites, The Watcher. In June 2014, Derek and Maria Broadus and their three young children were preparing to move into their new home, 657 Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey. This was their dream home and not far from Maria's childhood home. Before the Broadduses moved in, a letter addressed to the new owner arrived in their mailbox. The type letter asked if the home, quote, called to them with its force within. The writer said the house had been, quote, the subject of my family for decades now, and they claimed they had, quote, been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming, end quote, as their grandfather and father had been. The letter came from someone calling themselves the Watcher. The letter also included details about the Broadus family, though it did not mention them by name, but did include the number of children that they had. The Broadduses reached out to John and Andrea Woods, the previous owners, who said that in their 23 years of living in the home, they had never received a similar letter until they were about to move out. Both families went to the police and were told not to mention the letter to anyone, since all of their neighbors were possible suspects. Two weeks later, another letter was discovered. This letter included specific information about the Broadus family, including their children's birth order and nicknames. The Watcher claimed to have been observing one of their children. The Watcher asked if they had, quote-unquote, found all the secrets the house holds and if the children were scared to go to the basement. The author also asked what rooms the family would be sleeping in and said, quote, I'll know as soon as you move in. This will help me to plan better, end quote. The investigation stalled by the end of 2014 as there was very little evidence to go off of. Both Maria and Derek's mental health was in decline from the stress and paranoia the letters caused. Just six months after moving in, they decided to sell the house. The Broadduses sued the Woods over not disclosing information on the letters, which was picked up by local journalists and caused the story to go viral. This made selling the home virtually impossible, and the family considered selling the home to a developer that would demolish the house and split the property into two separate lots. This plan was denied by the Neighborhood Planning Board because the lots would each be less than three feet too small for the neighborhood regulation. However, in 2018, the same Neighborhood Planning Board approved splitting a nearby lot that required a larger exception. In December 2018, residents that were outspoken against the Broadus' plan received threatening hand-delivered letters signed Friends of the Broadus Family. It was later found that Derek had written these letters, and he claimed those were the only letters he sent. They were finally able to rent the home in 2016. Almost immediately after the new family moved in, another letter arrived. It read in part, quote, 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with my army of supporters. 
They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders, end quote. Police investigated several neighbors and some even accused the Broadduses of faking the entire thing. However, no one has been identified as the watcher. The next case we're going to look at is that of Cindy James. In the fall of 1982, Cindy James, who had recently separated from her husband and was living in a suburb of Vancouver, British Columbia, began receiving strange, threatening phone calls. Over the next seven years, Cindy reported nearly a hundred incidents of harassment. Five were violent physical attacks, while others were whispering or silent phone calls. Things got worse after she involved the police. She heard prowlers, her porch lights were smashed, and her phone line severed. Dead cats were left in her yard, and her dog was nearly strangled to death. According to her friend, Bizarre notes with letters cut from magazines began to appear on her doorstep. Cindy believed that someone was trying to scare her to death. She became reluctant and frightened to give details. Over time, the police began to doubt her stories. A number of attacks occurred between January 1983 to May 1989. These ranged from Cindy being found with nylon stockings tied tightly around her neck, to Cindy being stabbed in the hand with a paring knife, to Cindy's basement being on fire. One attack even left her in a coma. Due to the harassment and violence, she moved to a new house, painted her car, and changed her last name. She also hired a private investigator named Ozzie Caban. The police continued their investigation and questioned Cindy several times. They accused her of staging the fire in her basement and were skeptical of her allegations. Ozzie later reported that she would not tell them the entire story. She would be evasive, withhold information, and not act as a normal victim would do so. Her mother thinks the reason for her reluctance was that her attacker had threatened her family. By naming him, they would be killed. The threatening phone calls continued, but they were too short to trace. There were never ones when the police had 24-hour surveillance on her house for days on end with up to 14 officers, but when surveillance was off her home, another incident would happen. At some point between 1986 and 1988, Cindy was committed by a doctor to a local psychiatric ward, believing she was becoming suicidal. Ten weeks later, she left the hospital and she told her father that she believed she knew the identity of the perpetrator and would go after them herself. In the spring of 1989, Cindy had told her family and friends that the attacks were decreasing. Then, on May 25, 1989, Cindy went missing. That same day, her car was found in a nearby shopping plaza parking lot. Inside were groceries and a wrapped gift. There was blood on the driver's side door and items from her wallet were under the car. Two weeks later, her body was found at an abandoned house not far from the shopping plaza. It appeared she had been brutally murdered. Her hands and feet were bound together behind her back. A black nylon stocking was tied tightly around her neck, yet an autopsy revealed she had died from an overdose of morphine, the sedative fluorazepam, mm -hmm. and other drugs. Police concluded that she had committed suicide and closed the case in July of 1989. Ozzie did not 
believe Cindy would have been able to stage the scene, but others believed it was possible. The Vancouver coroner ruled that her death was not suicide, an accident, or a murder. They determined that she had died of a quote-unquote unknown event. Her parents never doubted that she was murdered. Her dad believed the police did not investigate the possibility of homicide or of somebody murdering her, instead zoning in or trying to prove that she committed suicide. Several suspects were investigated, including Cindy's ex-husband and a police officer she was dating after her divorce. But no one has ever been linked to the attacks on Cindy or to her death. So what do you think of either Cindy's case or the case of The Watcher? So The Watcher is a fairly local case for us. And I think that it's a wild story because it just doesn't make any sense, right? It seems to be this neighborhood warrior who has decided to take it upon themselves to be the arbiter and the protector of this one home. I will say that no matter who was the watcher, the city definitely did not do enough to help the Broadduses out. The fact that they wouldn't grant them the exception, even though they had did it before, is definitely just really weird to me. And it definitely seems that the neighbors didn't really like them. I know that there was some accusations that something shady had gone on with how they were able to purchase the home because they looked back at their real estate records and they were able to progressively upgrade their home several times um, with no real account to where the money was coming from. But I think that the watcher letters were just too elaborate and too mentally damaging to have been fake. And I feel the same way within the Cindy James case of she was in a coma. Like, you can't fake that. Like, I think that it's really sad that the police just didn't do enough to help her and didn't do enough to make sure that she had what she needed to feel safe. And then in her death, they continued that same pattern by not investigating it as a homicide. In what case would you see that the hands and the feet of the victim is bound? There's a stocking around their neck and you just assume that it's not a murder. I think the fact that she was killed with the drug just speaks to how she was killed. It doesn't mean that it was suicide as the police were trying to conclude. And the coroner didn't even agree with them, but they just said an unknown event, which to me doesn't really speak to much. And I would love to know more about how they made that determination, because that is definitely a unique classification from a coroner when it comes to the manner in which someone has died. What are your thoughts? Like I said, I love the Watcher case. I think it's so fascinating and it's truly like stuff of nightmares. It's something that you would see in a horror movie, not in real life. I agree. I don't think that the Broadduses were involved because of the mental anguish and the trouble. Even if they weren't going to move out of their house like six months later, like years down the line, people would still be skeptical of buying the home. 
I don't know who I think would have done it. I think definitely like a weird neighbor for sure, because it's interesting that the Woods family didn't get a letter until they were about to move. And I feel like it, it does line up with what the Broadduses were going through because if they had lived in the house for so long, then it would make sense if the watcher's correct that their father watched the house and now it's time for the watcher to take to watch the house and observe it. You can easily see a for sale sign or a sold sign or something in front of the house and realize, oh, okay, new people are coming in. A lot of real estate information is also like public knowledge, public information. You can easily Google like who is buying houses, which is really scary. I wonder if maybe like back in the day, if the watcher is correct that their grandfather was watching the house, I wonder if the grandfather and the family was so obsessed with it because maybe they got like swindled out of owning the house originally, or they didn't like the neighbors. Maybe they liked the house and thought the neighbors were like trashing the house and not taking care of it. Who knows? Definitely someone with too much time on their hands, I would say. It's just a wild story. I don't know why, but I kind of think we might find out who it is. I couldn't tell you why, but I just kind of have a gut feeling. I feel like someone might come forward. Or, hey, maybe the next generation of watchers will come forward. Who knows? <laughs> but, yeah, what an interesting story. And Cindy James's story is also truly stuff of nightmares. I have kind of gone back and forth. In the end, I definitely don't think she staged her own death. I do think she was killed. I think that someone probably drugged her in order to like incapacitate her and tie her up and do whatever they wanted. And they probably gave her too much. And that's why she overdosed. I totally agree with you, Del. What is unknown event? I have never heard of that being used to describe someone's death. I mean, at that point, wouldn't you just say like inconclusive? That's very strange. I do wonder if it was someone within the police force or someone with ties to the police force that did kill her. I didn't include this, but someone was seen like running from her house when her basement was on fire. Someone, I don't know if it was Ozzy or a friend that was coming to help her said, Hey, like call 911. And then the person just ran away. So that's very suspicious. And they never figured out who that person was, but it was a man. And I can't even imagine what poor Cindy went through. I don't know if she had any diagnosed or undiagnosed mental health issues, mental illness, but I think if she really was faking it, she would need some type of extreme, extreme mental health disorder, like like some intense paranoia to really think someone was after her. But yeah, I don't buy it. I think that someone was messing with her and trying to make her as uncomfortable as they could. And I think that someone was definitely messing with her and trying to harass, threaten, scare her, and they did get away with it. I will say, I find it interesting. And this is, you know, maybe my one point for maybe another person didn't do this, that they could have gotten away with so much, like seven years of toying with someone and harassing them and they got away with that that is kind of hard to believe for me but like I said I do think Cindy was murdered just a very very bizarre case and I don't think we're gonna get an answer to that one either I definitely agree with you I think that 
all of these cases, the Circleville letters, the Watcher, and the case of Cindy James really points to the harassment that one person or a group of people can perpetrate on others when they show a level of dedication to doing so. And it can range from something that is not physically harmful to, in the case of Cindy, someone being murdered and someone having their sanity completely destroyed. I don't know if it started out with her having a mental illness, but I'm sure after seven years of experiencing the harassment and accostment that she went through, I wouldn't be surprised if she developed some from that. I can definitely see some trauma being an effect of all of this. I know I would be. It's scary to even read about. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the Circleville letters. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the Joe 